morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. Thanks for being with us here in person. Thanks to everyone who tuned in online. Uh, however you're participating today, we're so happy to have you with us. Right now, we're in a teaching series as a church called Christ the King. And in this series, we are studying the gospel according to Matthew. In the New Testament, there's four different authors who record uh, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus along with his teachings, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And again, in this series, we are studying the story of Christ according to the apostle Matthew, who was one of his 12 disciples and apostles. And right now, as we're studying through Matthew's gospel, we find ourselves in chapters 8 and 9. And there's a special focus in chapters 8 and 9. In these particular chapters, the gospel writer Matthew is focused in on Jesus' great power. We know th by studying through this gospel uh, over, these, uh, over this whole course of the year, really, that Matthew wrote his gospel to present Jesus of Nazareth as the great king that God promised to one day send into the world who would rule over an eternal kingdom. And again, in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew presents Jesus not as any old king, but as a very, very powerful king. Take a look. First, Matthew shows us Jesus' power over disease, and then his power over nature, and then his power over demons, and then his power over sin, and then even his power over... So in each week of this series, we're focusing in on one aspect or another of Jesus' great power, uh, as well as studying various people's response to his great power. So, so today, we're focusing on, uh, you know, Jesus' power um, over sin, and then next week, uh, we're going to be seeing people's response to his power, and then the next week, we're back to Jesus' power over death, and then again, we see people's response. So again, that's an overview of the series, and now that you have that, uh, let me share a little more in depth what we're covering today. Today, our text is Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Next week, we have a longer text, um, but this week, it's just eight verses, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, and in these verses, Matthew highlights for us again, Jesus's power over sin. Now, if you think about it, the very heart of the gospel is this. Jesus can save us from our sin, right? I mean, God's law demands a penalty for sin, which is death. And for sin, we die physically, and apart from Christ, we will suffer eternally. But that is the very penalty that Jesus came to earth and died on a cross to save us from. Friends, this is why he was born. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was instructed by the angel, you shall call his name Jesus. By the way, Jesus means Yahweh saves. So the angel comes to Joseph and he says, you shall name his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So as we'll learn about a little more in depth next week, Jesus' very name speaks to the purpose for which he came, to save sinners from the penalty God's law demands for sin, which is death. 
As the Apostle Paul put it, take a look, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, let's say it out loud together, to save sinners. Friends, this is why he came. And in our text today, we're going to see Jesus doing the very thing he was born to do. And in the process, we're going to see him demonstrate in the most fantastic way his power even over sin. All right, let's get into our story and let's begin with the setting. Two weeks ago, Jesus was in a town called Gergesa on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was Gentile territory. So this was outside the land of Israel. And while there, he delivered two men from their demon possession. But having ministered to these two men who were in such desperate need, Jesus is now ready to head back to the land of Israel to his home base of operations, which was a town called Capernaum. So we read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So Jesus left Gergesa, crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and came to his own city, which is a reference not to the city he was uh, born in, uh, which is not a reference to the city he grew up in, rather is a reference to the city that was his home base of operations throughout his ministry. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, primarily ministered in Capernaum. And friends, it's here, back in Capernaum, that our story picks up. Today, if you'd like some hooks to hang your thoughts on as we work our way through the story, I would encourage you to grab that pen, grab those lesson notes, and this will help you to track along with me. The first thing that we see in our text today is what we're going to call the men's presentation. The men's presentation. And we see this in the first part of verse 2, where Matthew relates, and behold, some people brought to him, brought to Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, let me back up and give you the backstory. At this point in Jesus's ministry, because of all his healings, Jesus was a national and international celebrity. That's what we would call him today. That is, people had heard of Jesus and flocked to Jesus from, from everywhere within the land of Israel and from everywhere outside of the land of Israel. Accordingly, we read in Mark's gospel that when he returned from Gergesa, to Capernaum, it was reported that he was at home. Jesus had left to minister to the demon-possessed men in Gergesa, but now word spread that he was back, and when word reached a certain man who was paralyzed that Jesus was back in town, he was determined to get to Jesus. He had heard, no doubt, how Jesus had healed the paralyzed servant of the Roman centurion. And he wanted Jesus to do the same for him. But how in the world would he, being a paralytic, get to Jesus? Well, he came up with a plan, and his plan was to recruit four friends and ask them, would you carry me to Jesus? 
So this company of five men, the paralytic and his four friends, set out to find Jesus. And just so you know, this wouldn't have been hard to do. First of all, everyone knew that while Jesus was in town, when he wasn't traveling to Gergesa or some other place for ministry purposes, they knew that he stayed at Peter's mother-in-law's house. So they would have known where to look for Jesus. But let's say Jesus wasn't at Peter's mother-in-law's house. They still could easily find Jesus. I've been to Capernaum, okay? It's not a huge territory. And all you had to do was look around to see where the enormous crowd had gathered and you could easily find Jesus smack dab in the center of it every time. So these men set out to find Jesus and it wasn't a hard task. And they did find Jesus where he normally was at Peter's mother-in-law's house. All right, we read in Mark chapter 2, verse 2, that at the house, take a look, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. So when the company of these five men arrived at the house, they couldn't get to Jesus. Jesus was preaching a sermon to a packed house, literally, and they just couldn't get to him because People were so desperate to get close to Jesus themselves, and people were so desperate for Jesus to meet their own needs that they refused to step aside even for a paralytic. So the paralytic's friends had to come up with an ingenious solution, which we read about in Luke's parallel account of this same event. Take a look. Finding no way to bring him in. Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. These are some good friends, right? All right. No one would let him in through the door. They said, fine, no problem. We'll just go in through the roof. And they let their friend down right at Jesus's feet. And that's why I've entitled this first point, the men's presentation, because the friends presented the paralytic to Jesus. All right, now that you've seen the men's presentation, let's look secondly at Jesus's declaration. Jesus's declaration. Here we're referring to that which is said by Jesus to the paralytic. And we see this in the second part of verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a curious thing to say, isn't it? I mean, didn't the man come to Jesus for healing of his body? Why is Jesus talking about the healing of his soul? And friends, the answer lies in an understanding of the theology of the people who lived in the first century. We have to remember that in the first century and well before, the Jewish people believed that all suffering was the result, not of sin in general, rather was the result of personal sin. I mean, we saw this in the book of Job, right? In the Old Testament, when Job was deathly ill, his friend Eliphaz attributed his affliction to his sin. He said this to Job. He said, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright 
cut off. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. And friends, this same belief that all suffering is the result of personal sin was, was alive and well during the time of Christ. I would call to your attention the instance where Jesus' disciples said to him when they passed by a man who had been born blind. Here's what they said. They said, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So you see, they believe that all sin, all suffering, all affliction was nothing more, nothing less than the result of personal sin. Now, if you want to get technical about it, all sickness is ultimately the result of sin. I mean, when sin entered into the world, so did sickness and disease and ailments, like all of that entered the world through sin. But such things are not always the result of personal sin. Nevertheless, this was the common view in Jesus' day. So though the man wanted physical healing, he believed, his theology believed, that his sin must be dealt with first in order to obtain his healing. And Jesus knew that. As we're going to see, Jesus could read the minds of the scribes. We're going to see that shortly. So he knew what was in this man's mind. He knew what was in this man's heart. And he knew that the man was first looking for his sins to be forgiven so that he could get his physical healing. Well, since he came to Jesus in faith, which is the biblical requirement for salvation, Jesus declared to him, your sins are forgiven. Now, here you and I are today reading this 2,000 years after the fact. And we think, no big deal. Jesus forgiving sin, no big deal. Jesus forgiving sin, uh, that's kind of what Jesus does. How is this even noteworthy uh, for Matthew to record? But here's the deal. You have to put yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew. To them, Jesus was just a man. To them, Jesus was just a man from Nazareth. Nazareth was a, was a town in the middle of nowhere that was only about 20 miles or so southwest of Capernaum where Jesus was preaching the word to the people. So how in the world could this man go ahead and tell someone that their sins were forgiven? Oh, friends, they believed that Jesus was sent from God, and they believed that God had empowered Jesus to perform mighty miracles, but they hadn't yet made the jump to conclude that Jesus was not only sent from God, uh, they had not yet concluded that Jesus was God, God in the flesh. To them, only God could forgive sins, and to them, Jesus was not God. So, friends, they were flabbergasted. They were absolutely shocked at Jesus's temerity, at Jesus's hubris to go ahead and usurp the divine prerogative that only God has in telling someone their sins are forgiven. So don't read it how we read it in the 21st century. Uh, read it and hear it today as the original audience would have. This was unbelievable that someone would make such a declaration. This leads us nicely into the third thing we see in our text. 
after Jesus' declaration comes the scribe's accusation. Because Jesus made such a preposterous declaration, now we see the scribe's accusation. And we see this in verse 3. Matthew writes, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Now, friends, back then they didn't have exclamation marks. But when you see in the text, and behold, that is the first century equivalent to our 21st century three exclamation marks at the end of a sentence. They said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. That's what they were thinking in their mind. Now remember, the scribes were the experts in Jewish law, and they knew that God's law taught that only God himself could forgive sin. As God himself put it in Isaiah chapter 43, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins and will never think of them again. Friends, in scripture, God's the only one who can forgive sin because ultimately all sin is a transgression against him. As David put it in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you see, forgiving sin was a divine prerogative. It was God's prerogative. Yet here was Jesus claiming via his declaration, uh, his ability to forgive sin. So the scribes are saying to themselves, this is blasphemy. To them, Jesus was defaming God. Jesus was disgracing God by claiming equality with God. By claiming to be able to do something that only God could do. And we have to remember what a serious charge blasphemy was. Many months from now, when we get to Matthew chapter 26, we'll see that blasphemy was the very thing that resulted in Jesus being uh, crucified on the cross. The charge was blasphemy. But it's here in Matthew 9 that Jesus is accused of blasphemy for the first time. And the accusation came because he claimed to have power to forgive sins, the same as God the Father did. Now, if Jesus was just a man, then I would actually agree with the scribes that what Jesus said was blasphemy. No man can declare to another man, oh, your sins are forgiven. Man does not have the power to pardon sin. Oh, we can forgive someone uh, for an offense they do against us, but ultimately we cannot forgive someone of sin. That's something only God can do. But friends, as we've been learning, Jesus was more than mere man. And that's what we're going to see in the next part of our text. Take a look. In response to the scribe's accusation, we next see the son of man's vindication. The son of man's vindication. And we see this in verses four to seven. Let me read it to you. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to the scribes, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. 
Friends, this is Jesus' response to the scribe's accusation that he was blaspheming by declaring the paralytic's sins forgiven. Jesus here vindicates himself. To vindicate himself, Jesus says to them, let me ask you a question, which is easier, to forgive sin or to make the lame walk? Now, if I was to ask you this question, don't answer out loud, but what would you say is easier, to forgive sin or to make the lame walk? I'm not going to give you long to think about it, but maybe even in this short little time, you're like, I can't answer the question. Well, friends, neither could the scribes. The question, Jesus is not asking for, for an answer. Oh, oh, I think forgiving sins is easier. Or, or, oh, I think making the lame walk is easier. The scribes would have answered Jesus, which is easier? Neither. They're both impossible. Man cannot forgive sin. And man cannot make the lame walk. Both are impossible. Jesus, you've asked the question, which is easier? The answer is neither. Both are impossible. These are two things that only God can do. Jesus says, great, I got you right where I want you. Jesus says, in essence, I agree. Now, let me prove to you that I am not blaspheming by declaring this man's sins forgiven. Jesus says, so that you'll know that I have the power to forgive sins, which is something you cannot see. Let me make the lame man walk something you can see and something that you've already conceded only God can do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He healed the paralytic, something they could see, to prove that he had the power to forgive sin, something they could not see. And this astounding miracle of healing was the Son of Man's vindication. All right, here's the final thing we see in our text. After the Son of Man's vindication, we lastly see what I'm going to call the crowd's determination. The crowd's determination. Hey, have any of you uh, ever seen uh, Judge Judy? Let me see your hand. Judge Judy, you heard of her, watched her? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, she's 79 years old, but she's still going strong. And she has a new show, and it's called Justice Judy. And my wife recently got into it. And how many of you husbands know whatever your wife's into? Now, you get into it as well, you know? And so I've been watching Justice Judy, and it's, it's really fun. Took me a couple episodes to get hooked, but like now I'm hooked, and now I enjoy it just as much as my wife. It's a really fun show. And I don't know if it's because I've been watching Justice Judy or because it's right here in the text, but either way, what I see here is things playing out very much like a court case. The plaintiffs, the one bringing the charge, the charge of blasphemy, it's the scribes. The defendant, the one being accused of a crime, is Jesus. And that makes the crowd the large crowd that filled that house all the way through where people couldn't even get in the door. The crowd was the jury. And having heard both sides of the case, the crowd now makes their determination. Take a look, Matthew chapter 9, verse 8. When the crowds saw it, that is the proof of Jesus' authority to forgive sins. When they saw it, they were afraid. 
and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So what was the crowd's determination? The crowds determined that Jesus indeed had the authority on earth to forgive sins for he proved it with his miracle. Of course, they praise God for the miracle because again, only God ultimately can make the lame walk. But friends, it seems from our text that it begins to dawn on them. Only God can make the lame walk, yet this is the very thing that Jesus has just done. And as they contemplated the implications of the miracle, uh, what it really meant about who Jesus really was, they became terrified. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it is. This is the normal response that people have to Jesus when they realize who he really is. For example, when the disciples realized that Jesus had power over nature by calming the storm, they were filled with great fear. That story began with them being afraid of the storm, and it ended with them being afraid of Jesus. Likewise, when the citizens of Gergesa realized that Jesus had power over the demonic realm by casting out the legion of demons, they too were seized with great fear. And when those crowded in Peter's mother-in-law's house realized that Jesus had power over sin, they also were afraid. The question begged, who was this man? who wielded power over disease and wielded power over nature and wielded power over demons and wielded power even over sin. Who was this man? And friends, that is the very, very question that Matthew is trying to get you and I to answer in our hearts. Who is Jesus. Only God has power over disease, yet Matthew's shown us that Jesus has power over disease. Only God has power over nature, but Matthew's shown us that Jesus has power over nature. Only God has power over demons, yet Matthew's shown us that Jesus has power over demons. And friends, only God can forgive sin, yet Jesus is shown by Matthew to have power to forgive sin. So you see, it's unmistakable. Matthew is calling us to recognize Jesus for who he is so that we'll call on him to save us from our sins, which again, that is why Jesus was born. It's why he came into the world, to save us from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death. Now, Matthew today has not only showed us that Jesus can save us from the penalty for sin, he has also shown us how. We know how because we saw it in the example of the paralytic. How did he come to Jesus? He came to Jesus in faith. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. How are we saved from the just penalty for sin? How are we saved from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death? How are we saved from that? We are saved by faith. And when we come to Jesus in faith, trusting him to forgive us of our sins, 
we're not only pardoned from the penalty for sin, we are granted something as well. We're pardoned from the penalty of sin, but then we're granted citizenship in the eternal kingdom of Christ. And in case you don't know why that's such a big deal, let me remind you in closing. Friends, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, Jesus demonstrated his power over disease, right? Well, why did he do that? There's a number of reasons for sure, but one of them is this. He was giving us a preview of what life will be like one day in his kingdom. And we have every reason to believe that one day in the kingdom of God, sickness and disease uh, will be eradicated because Jesus proved while he was here on earth that he has the power to eradicate sickness and disease. So what a glorious place the kingdom will be. No no, no diabetes for me. No little sensor on my arm here that I got to scan 80,000 times a day to check my blood sugar levels. No cancer, no MS, no nothing else. No leukemia for children. In the kingdom, disease is going to be completely eradicated. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, Jesus demonstrated his power over nature by calming a storm. And friends, he did this to give us a preview of what life will be like in his kingdom. In his kingdom, there's not going to be any tornadoes. There's not going to be any earthquakes. There's not going to be any hurricanes. There's not going to be any floods. There's not going to be any wildfires. Because Jesus is going to completely eradicate natural disasters from his kingdom. And we can trust him that he'll do that one day because when he was here on earth, he demonstrated power over nature. Moving right along in Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, take a look. Jesus, in these verses, demonstrated his power over the demonic realm by casting out a legion of demons from these two poor men who had been so greatly afflicted. And Jesus did that to give us a preview of what life will be like in the kingdom of heaven. No more Satan, no more demons, and no more of their influence on the earth. Because the current earth, we passed away. The current earth, the current heavens, we passed away. God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And in the kingdom of heaven, no demonic influence. Where will Satan and his demons be? For all eternity. They're not going to be in the kingdom. They're going to be locked up. They're going to be confined to the lake of fire, which is outside the kingdom of heaven. So no demonic influence in the kingdom. Finally, in Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8, which is our text today. It's the text we've studied today. In our passage, Jesus demonstrated that not only does he have power over uh, disease and and nature and demons, but but today he's shown us, and then the demonic realm, uh, he's shown us that he also has power over sin. And this too is a preview of what life will be like in the kingdom of heaven. We read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, that in heaven no longer will there be any curse. And the reason there's not going to be any curse in heaven is because in heaven there's not going to be any sin. Pretty amazing kingdom, right? We watch TV shows. We see these different kingdoms and these different things. We go, oh, that's amazing. That's Well, friends, there's a reason that our heart is so drawn when we learn about various kingdoms and various, it's because we were created by God to live with him forever in one. My heart longs to live in the kingdom. 
without disease, without disasters, without demons, without sin. When I pray the Lord's Prayer each day, my favorite part is when we talk about the kingdom. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, I pray that I would honor you today in all I think and do and say. And God, secondly, I pray your kingdom come. The kingdom you appointed Jesus to rule over forever. God, hasten the day where the kingdom comes. Because I can't wait to live in a place without disease, without disasters, without demons, without sin, without death. And on the authority of God's word, I am going to live there forever because like the paralytic, I have come to Jesus in faith. Trusting him to save me from my sins. And my simple question to you today is this, have you? Have you? We are saved by faith. This is the teaching in the Old Testament and the New. Let me show you this too very quickly. In the Old Testament, we read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He wasn't made righteous by fulfilling the precepts of the law. The law had not yet even been given. He was saved by faith. And friends, this is how we're saved today. Same way as we just read today in the New Testament. And when Jesus saw there, say it out loud, when he saw there, faith. He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Friends, that's how our sins are forgiven too. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that when we come to Jesus in faith, we are pardoned from the penalty God's law demands for sin, which is death. But it's not just something negative. We're not just pardoned from sin. We are granted something as well. And it's citizenship in the eternal kingdom of Christ. God wants you there. I want you there. And if you want you there too, would you join me in our closing prayer today? Those of you online, those of you out in the foyer, everyone here in the auditorium, let's pray to our Heavenly Father. In your heart, say this. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to this earth to save sinners. God, I place myself in that category, a sinner in need of saving. God, I know what my sin deserves, but today I'm trusting Jesus to save me from that fate and to instead provide me with citizenship in his eternal kingdom. God, I believe on Jesus for who he was. I believe on Jesus as God. You are God the Father. He is God the Son. And today I'm asking him to be my Savior. And I am appointing him to be Lord of my life, the new ruler, the one who calls the shots, the standard by which I live. Thank you that his will is revealed in your word. Help me to follow closely after his will. And now, God, I pray that in response to my faith, you would pardon my sins. Please count my sins punished through Christ so that I can go free. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.